Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present, Every week we broadcast out of Redfern, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. We honour this in all the work that we do and carry this into our conversation today. My name is Sharika Hellaludin. I'm a producer here at Race Matters, a show exploring conversations on race, culture and identity. This week, we're bringing you something slightly different, a recording from our first ever live event recorded live at Darling Square Library, Gadigal Country, titled Imagination as Practice. Hosted by Race Matters' Darren Lasagas, he was joined by artist, rapper and ballroom icon Jamaica Moana, artist and educator Nicole Barakat, and some words shared by writer, activist, and curator of Queer Black and Pride, Latoya Rule. You're going to hear a chat that traverses creativity in relationship to social change, how art making can forge ways to form connection and solidarities, and ways that we can understand creative decisions, not just as expression, but as tools of survival and hope. Yeah. We begin with all of them speaking to what brings them together in this conversation and to their art practices more broadly and how this relates to their desires for social change. My name is Daniel Sargas. I'm a broadcaster, I'm the program director at FBI Radio. Uh, so much of my time at the station has been, I guess, transformative, both on and off air. I've been a volunteer outside of this role for about seven years. A lot of time spent reckoning with what puts the community in community radio, and often that means thinking and speaking uh, and imagining in creative ways. Uh, you are listening to, and you're here with live uh, for Race Matters, it's a show that I co-host, uh, produced by Sharika Hellaludin, who's in the room with us too. We're a program that holds space for conversations diving deep into the ways we understand and value the complexities of our racial identities. A bit about the show, we've been doing it for about five years, and in many ways, this event feels like a nice culmination of the things we've learned along the way. Uh, all the amazing guests we've met and the bigger questions we want to ask ourselves in this show Imagination as Practice uh, is the name of this talk, Artists and Community Builders on How Creativity Can Shape Social Change. That's the title of the talk today. But what does that mean? Why have a conversation like this on a show like Race Matters? 
We see imagination, the ability for us to be creative and resourceful, as something essential, as something urgent, and something that is part of our toolkit for social change. Naming imagination as a practice uh, speaks to the idea that it's also something we need to continually do. It's a verb. Uh, we need to refine it, and we need to turn our ideas into action. So this talk today is seated in hope, but also recognises that our ability to dream, to see ourselves in the future, can be taken away by structures of oppression and violence. More than anything, it's an invitation that asks, how do we talk about race, racial justice, in a way that isn't just anchored by oppression, but in a way that is complex and recognises the violence of oppression, but also honours the beauty and expansiveness of resisting oppression and beyond. Helping us bring this conversation to life are two amazing panellists, all creatives, community builders and people we admire. We're going to ask them to briefly introduce themselves. Jamaica, can we start with you? Kia ora everyone. My name is Jamaica Moana. I am the non-binary rapper. That's my full-time career. I'm really blessed to do. And I, what else am I? I'm a community leader for the ballroom community and creative director and writer. And I claim to be a model as well, but I'm not. <laughs> a model citizen, maybe. <laughs> In all, you know, the most disruptive ways. Um, my name is Nicole Barakat. Uh, Barakat means blessing in Arabic, or blessings, I should say, plural. I am uh, was born and raised here on Gadigal country, and I'd like to also pay my respects to Gadigal elders of the past and present. Um, my family is from Kafarasgab, which is a little village in the mountains in the north of Lebanon. And um, it's it, it just recently, it's the first time I've put in my bio that I'm a queer Kafarasgabi artist because grappling with broad terms like I hate Middle East and it's very colonial, and then we came up with Swana, Southwest Asia, North Africa, so broad. You know, it was other people that came in and drew up borders and nations and so and regions. So it's like I'm going to pinpoint right down to this tiny little village that I'm from. And so that today is what I'm sharing with you. But also I'm an artist and I'm an educator and I work a lot in community engagement. And I have done so for the last 20, 25 years. So this is where I'm at. Jamaica and Nicole, yeah, please make them welcome. Uh, you may have noticed we are a panel of three today, where originally we had planned to be a panel of four. Unfortunately, uh, Latoya Rule couldn't make it today, but they'll be sorely missed, and uh, we'll be sharing this conversation over the next few weeks, and I highly implore that you check out their work. Uh, they're a formidable person and creative. In lieu of uh, Latoya being here, they've actually shared some words, because they really wanted to be here today, that our uh, producer, Sharika, will share before we really get into the chat. Thank you. Um, hey, I'm Sharika. Um, yeah, Latoya has very generously shared some words despite being quite unwell today. And I really wanted to bring in their spirit into this chat. I think they were one of the first people we reached out to. And as I share their words, you'll probably understand why. Um, a content note that some of what they share briefly, but not in detail, mentions um, black deaths in custody and transphobia. But I do want to share that, just kind of honouring who is it that we choose to listen to and what is it that we care to pay attention to. So these are Latoya's words. 
I had really hoped to sit alongside this panel of beautiful intellectual creatives and share notes today on imagination as practice. So I just want to share a few thoughts and hope it resonates. As a Rawadji Maori Takatapui prison abolitionist, I rely on creative practice to keep me sustained and emotionally safe, especially in times when I am carrying grief, my own, my family's and communities. Carrying out creative practice, particularly as protest in response to state-sanctioned violence and brutality in so-called Australia has been my inner resolve and release. I particularly recall here the creation of the mock prison officers' hoods from our protest action on Karanayada, Adelaide in 2001, during the time of my brother's coronial inquest. I continue to give thanks to friends like the brilliant Matt Stieg of House of Helmuddy and the Department of Homo Affairs for bringing these designs together. As my brother Wayne Feller Morrison was hooded with a spit hood, leading to his death in custody, I thought it would be interesting to display this type of brutality back to the public and the state for them to imagine the alternative narrative to which is continually promoted, that police and correctional officers are apparently innocent of the thousands of killings of Aboriginal peoples. This protest actioned that reimagined the crime scene of my brother's final conscious moments and spoke in the place of the eight officers' words who refused to provide evidence, went on to influence the announcement that same afternoon of the first ban on spithoods in the world, in a conservative, very white South Australia nonetheless. The entire action was carried out by up to 30 people, majority of whom were queer, trans, non-binary, black, indigenous and brown people today. Today, we are closer to a national ban on spit hoods and from there, the development of a national anti-torture coalition. Creating moments of black space, even on a small scale and particularly for LGBTQ plus people, is about imagining the advancement of Aboriginal rights and sovereignty. It is attaining a time for us where all people can exercise their full rights to freedom from colonial violence, to live with peace, to grieve fully and uninterrupted, to surrender to their long-held hopes and visions where they will not suffer abuse and violence and response to wanting to live. Imagination is decolonial. Lastly, I want to uplift protesters across Auckland today in their successful shutdown of violent turf Posey Parker. This kind of mahi or work is integral not only in supporting our imagining of an abolitionist future free from the violence that is transphobia, but is securing the literal space where our communities can thrive. Finally, fuck the police and Posey Parker. In fact, fuck all Nazis in solidarity or oha. Latoya rule. Um, yeah, so thank you again to LaToya for uh, giving us permission to share their thoughts and their words and obviously wish them healing rest and yeah, I hope that also kind of resonates with you all today in the rest of the conversation. So many incredible words to be sitting in already from LaToya who couldn't be here and hopefully we can touch on them in our conversation uh, today. But let's kick it off. We all have such different experiences and art practice, art practices. And throughout today, we're going to hear how this comes together or even digresses from each other in meaningful ways. Let's open up the first question. And Jamaica, we will start with you. How, if at all, do you understand your creative practice in relation to desires for social change? Um, I think... Oh, I don't think I know that my existence itself is 
a desire for social change. When I arrive at events, for example, yesterday in the morning, I went to a woman in breakfast event in the city, but I don't identify as a woman. In the night, I went to a hip-hop cipher led by men in the West, but I don't identify as a man. So there's different groups of people when I rock up to these places. The question for social change is already in their mind because they're like, they can see that I'm talented, but then they, they just question because the talent is like covered by this image that I portray myself as or that I identify as. So I think... All of that together is just, I'm a walking spotlight of social change, you know, and I don't even have to open my mouth. I can rock up to a place um, and that's automatically what it is. But what I also love is that I can be with these women, be with these men, be with these people and prove them wrong. You know, I prove them wrong because my thing is, my goal in this life is for people to see my talent before my identity and before my sexuality. Successful examples are actually seeing like the most cis hetero men give me respect afterwards. And then the most like snooty bitches like Posey Parker, cunt, um, that actually can see some change and they start believing it. Even if it's 1% that might grow. And just on that, like I was in the Uber on the way here, so emotional watching the video of like Posey getting shut down. It was just um, something that was incredibly powerful to see a sea of Maori people, queer takatapui people, shut this bitch down. I really wanted to source that bitch myself. I know she got tipped with bolognese sauce. I wish I was that person. Nicole? Yeah, I think a few years ago, quite probably about 10 years ago, I sort of had a moment where I was like, why am I making art? And one of the big reasons was to transform the conditions of everyday life. And I think on a very basic level, that's where, for me, art art needs to start in that place. So that's transforming the conditions of everyday life for me as a human, but also for the people that I encounter in my work as an educator, as a community um, facilitator, but also the people that encounter my artwork as well. And so at that point, it's like, what does that mean? Transformation such a big word. Um, in my education work, a lot of it's around building empathy and actually educating young people, but also adults around empathy because, you know, and this is, I, I hear this in your words as well and in Latoya's words around performance and it's how do we actually foster empathy and I think it's something we don't talk about as much and, you know, and this is where imagination comes back into it because I feel like imagine an that we lived in a, in a world that was empathetic, where people came from empathy and from love and connection. Um, and I think that when people can make connections with their story and your story and that person's story, that's how we build that empathy. But also in terms of transforming the conditions of everyday life, it's also about having encounters and opportunities with beauty and hearing Latoya talk about grief and, you know, we're all walking around carrying these depressed and wounded spirits. Um, and, and not everyone, obviously, but in some shape or form. And I always think of Bell Hooks, um, who said, beauty is a balm to a depressed and wounded spirit. And encounters with beauty and encounters with um, objects and art and things that actually nurture that is such a healing thing for our communities. I feel like 
it is important to have work that reflects the world at times, but it's also to, really important to have that balance, to have artwork that actually acts as a, a, teal, a, a tool for healing and also a way into other ways of thinking about the world. And that's the biggest thing for me is that um, how do we imagine the world we want to live in if we don't have that opportunity? And the beautiful thing is you don't have to be an artist to do that. And as an educator and as someone who, who, who facilitates in communities, that's my thing is to encourage everyone to see that they have that ability to imagine their communities, to imagine the place they want to live in. I mean, this idea of transformation and transforming the everyday, what are some concrete or tangible examples of rituals or tools that are part of your everyday that um, embody that transformation? Or more than that, what are tools to open yourselves to even being able to encounter moments of beauty? Because, you know, this idea of empathy means opening up. So much, so much, so much so people are being closed off from being able to experience beauty. What are the tools in which you can open that up? Sure. Um, there are many. And in fact, this is also something that's really important to me is going back to ancestral practices. So my ancestral knowledge, ancestral practices have been severed by migration, by colonisation. And so for me, remembrance work and ancestral remembrance really does lead the work that I do. And that means working with plants. It means working with coffee, listening to my grandmothers and my ancestors that I never met but actually learning from them because a lot of that knowledge is embodied. In fact, all of it is. And a lot of, I always think intuition is ancestral knowledge. It's our ancestors guiding us for what we need to do. So working with our plant sisters, as my beautiful friend Leila Fagali coined that, that term, um, working with plants and listening with plants, but also making medicines. So I've been making flower essences which work energetically and I will off I'll offer them to my community and to people to actually help them to get through difficult times or to actually change the energy in a space or a room. And I really believe in that and that's also where imagination comes in because you know, the energy of a flower, what the fuck is she talking about? It's like, well, but those really subtle ways of working with plants and also coffee, um, I'd also read coffee cups and that's something I recently started doing in the last, say, um, seven or eight years. And for me, that is a way of connecting with people in a really intimate way and delivering a message. And that connection with people is so beautiful and sometimes so profound and just holding that space for someone to hear a message that they need to hear in a way that was taught to me by my ancestors, because, you know, Lebanese people can be pretty brutal, like, who taught you how to do this? And it's like, well, I was listening to my grandmother, and sure, I never met her, but she taught me how to do this. And it's a medium. And to be able to offer people something that, that is exists outside of our reality is a really beautiful thing to witness, because they resonate with that, and there's truth in that for them, and they realise that they can access these other ways of listening, of being and understanding the world. It doesn't all have to be right in front of us to believe it. And that's where I say, you know, everyone has this ability 
we have to just give it time and listen and allow it in. Jamaica, what are your rituals? What are the things that you do every day to transform that world for yourself? I definitely relate to you as well. Like for ancestral practices, being Māori, the um, biggest connection, if anybody doesn't know, in our Māori culture, um, objects are our gods. So um, I like... We came from the mountains, we came from the sea, we came from the sky. They're all different parts of all of us. And the best thing about that, living in Eora, is that we do have all of access to these things. And even though it's far, we do have placements. Like, you can feel connected. I can feel like I'm at my grandfather's house if I'm in Kuji, you know, things like that. Um, and that allows me, it's a getaway. I'm a person that gets very sick of being in this vessel of a body physically. And I like to take myself out of this space because... We're so limited, you know? There's only so much that we can do. I want to fly a bit. But to do things like that, I have to, like, take myself out of it. I like this question because it's something that takes me... that makes me be able to um, do this life a lot easier. You know, I'd be a mess if I only just stayed within myself, but sometimes it's too much. I can just go outside and then connect up to my elders up there and then they just give me clarity you know to always remember that even if I'm having a tough day my imagination can take me away from that you know rocking up back to what I was saying before rocking up to spaces that aren't meant for me but reclaiming those spaces it makes me comfortable knowing that I'm not one I'm 10,000 you know there's 10,000 ancestors behind me both my culture and also through my community as well you know I like to claim that even if it comes down to like the top trans woman of color that I look up to that's an ancestor or this, this, like I all collectively have them behind me and that's something easy when I remember. Even if I'm really stressed or about to do a gig, five minutes before I'll just take myself there and just remember. I mean, this is a good point to pivot into the idea of imagination as a collective and a community practice. Something that feels like a common thread between both of your practices is your unique ability to bring people together. I want to place these questions in relation to what we've been thinking through so far. Jamaica, you're a ballroom icon, leader, model, and your music resonates across a lot of queer communities uh, and communities of colour. A few weeks after Sydney hosted World Pride, do you have any reflections on how these spaces taught you about the power of queer and gender diverse people coming together? Gender diverse and trans people thrive more in spaces that aren't forcing us together. You know, I think um, World Pride was amazing, but it definitely did have its own faults. And I realized that we enjoy being around each other more outside of these seasons that are very tokenistic, you know? It's like, we just, we don't need people or spaces to tell us to celebrate, you know? And like, I don't need just one month to be proud. I'm, I've been saying this a lot this week, but I'm like, I'm so fucking over being proud. That's literally my thing that I'm saying. But saying that, it's like, I'm over being proud around just am I making sense oh I'm, yeah I'm the difference between having, performing pride and yeah, embodying pride literally that like I I feel more proud when I'm out west by myself being authentic amongst a crowd of people that don't think it, see it for me you know that because that's a, a term of resi resilience that comes with being being proud so that's my biggest reflection of um, world pride beyond the business I think um, just having this mindset um, to sustain those beliefs, you know? Because we can see it right now. It's it's quite scary what's happening at the moment. These counter-protests that are going on, people are coming out, people are really just saying, look, go against them, grab them, hurt them, after a time of that. So, yeah, again, like, 
what we saw today in Aotearoa, being able to see that we can come together and say, you know what, get fucked. It doesn't need to be a time of Mardi Gras. Mm, this is a point that I want to touch on a little bit later in terms of, you know, imagination in relation to risk and safety. Um, so I'm really keen to touch on that conversation in a little bit. Um, we want to turn to some of the art that you make, Nicole. Um, there are seeds of introspection and quietness as you work with deep listening and intuitive processes. First, can you describe to us what that means, this idea of deep listening? Yeah, so I guess I've sort of talked a little bit about it in terms of listening to um, ancestral knowledge and being open to that. But listening really, for me, is about actually just taking the time and not just listening, obviously, with my ears, but listening with my intuition and listening in a way that opens up all of my senses and actually just allows things, allows me to receive things without actually judging them or trying to make sense of them, but just letting everything in. And I think that's when I find the really important and you know, exciting things reach me is when I actually just let that in. And I don't always do that consciously because I feel like sometimes, you know, the ancestors are feeding me things and being like, you need to pay attention to this. And if I haven't been, then it's like, oh, okay, it keeps popping up. Um, so that's one of the practices actually in terms of listening and taking that time is something that I've been trying to share with communities through um, my teaching practice and through um, my community facilitation is actually to invite people to actually stop and connect and listen and you know first and foremost it's always about sitting and listening to country the country that you're on and actually acknowledging and respecting the elders and the ancestors and the country where you're making work or you are listening, and that's always a big part of um, the practice as well. It's not just about me connecting with my ancestors, but it's also about acknowledging that I'm practicing my culture and connecting with my ancestors on somebody else's um, country and doing that with in respectful ways as well. I wanna maybe draw out this idea of deep listening across timelines, across conventions and constraints like it's so obvious that by very essence of deep listening it is imagining um, what do you think the imaginations of the elders of this practice so I guess the practitioners of deep listening from generations before us what do you think their ima imaginations were and do you think that we realize them you're next well, that's a huge that is a huge question because I feel like um I don't know the answer to that. And I think that is that is a question that um, I feel excited about. So I feel like it's something that I would love to sit and listen to and find out. But I also think that um, there was a, you used the word urgency earlier. And I really think that, that is that hit home with me because I feel like it is urgent for us to use our imaginations because we are stuck. Not all of us, but as a collective, we are stuck. And I feel like these powers, the, you know, the, the fascists and the Nazis and the transphobes and the TERFs are holding us down. And they don't want this change to happen, but it's inevitable. And we are actually on a path to change. But I feel like we need this collective movement and we need this collective push. And I do think that imagination is something that is going to get us there. It is something that is going to push us through. And it's been proven because I think all of the ancestors who made change did that because they imagined a different place they wanted to be. They imagined a better way of doing things. They imagined, you know, fairer work conditions or no work at all. And they imagined, you know, 
a land that could be abundant and could feed everybody and they imagined um, freedom to be who they are. And so I feel like all of that came from this desire and this vision to see something else. So I feel like that urgency in imagination is something that our ancestors did that we also obviously need to harness at this time. And a lot of people are. It's not like we're not doing it, but we need to keep going and keep pushing and everybody does. It can't just be those on the front line who are directly impacted, but there needs to be solidarity as well and, you know, and urgently. I mean, Jamaica, for you, ballroom by very essence is community, it's family, it's lineage. Same, same for you. What do you think the dreams and imaginations of your ancestors, either within ballroom or beyond, were? And do you think they've been realised? Um, I'll talk about my my Maori ancestors. So I think there's like, we can't tap into the their wholehearted um, mindset. I think that that's the beauty that they're at such a distance from us, but we definitely have natural nuances that translate to our day to day. Um, but I do know for certain that my ancestors were very ruthless. And back in the day, we're learning about Maori culture, everyone. Um, my ancestors would be cannibals. Right, and they would go against like another village, and to win, they would need the chief of the other village. They would need their head on a stick at the front of your house, like a little letterbox. Um, that actually translates to me day to day because there's a, a look or a stare or a just a little moment or a word from somebody. Like my mindset goes back to how my ancestors were so ruthless, so relentless, um, and that's something that I feel, which also translates into ballroom as well. Ballroom is the most unapologetic, beautiful collective of people that I'm so blessed with. And like, I'm blessed to be on the same level of leaders with everyone to lead this next generation. It's really beautiful. Um, I feel the best thing about ballroom is that it's a different collective of people, multicultural, that all connect to ruthless ancestors, you know? So um, all of that in a collective together, I can see why it could be very scary coming to a ball, you know? Because it's a bunch of people who are ready. We're ready for it because the space was created against those those vibes, you know? Um, but actually being in it is, it's like a warm hug every second, yeah. But on the other side, it looks like we're gonna bash you, but we're, we're, we're chill. I see the chops, they are, they are brutal. My name is Sharika Halaludin. I'm a producer on the show and bringing you this dreamy chat we've been hearing with rapper and ballroom icon, Jamaica Moana, and artist educator, Nicole Barakat, facilitated by our very own Darren Lasagas. When enacting imagination as practice, there is an element of risk-taking that this is uncharted territory. When do you decide a risk is worth taking? When do you balance risk and safety, knowing that these are really big things to grapple with? Here's Nicole and Jamaica on this. I feel like when I was younger, I was more willing to take risks. and But also, honestly, I had a Catholic fucking upbringing and it was like I had to unlearn the safety and the oppression of like not upsetting, not rocking the boat, not speaking out. And I, it took me a long time to unlearn that. And luckily, there was a fire lit in me as a young queer person, you know, in the 90s. And 
speaking out and being bold and not feeling um, scared. But I feel like as I get older, not that I've gone back to that towing the line, but I feel like the way I take risks and the way I push at the edges is a lot more subtle. And so for me, it tends to happen on a more interpersonal level or on, um, you know, or with groups or but rather than sort of out there in the world. And I think, um, I think risk is obviously very subjective and it's different for everybody. Jamaica? Um, I feel like I don't have to decide. I feel like it's already been decided. Um, me like stepping into my authenticity as a person, that was a decision. And then becoming a rapper was also a decision for me. Like I say that like with humor because it's something like, it's almost like a huge steel wall that says no. And I'm just knocking on the door like, babe, open the door. You know, but it's like, that was a decision for me that I had to continue to keep going. The day-to-day risks that people see aren't actually risks to me because it's actually a natural thing, what I do. Me leaving the house is a risk, but it's actually, it's a part I'm functioned to be able to handle these kinds of things. And it's because, personally, the risk of the industry is nothing because I've personally been through a lot of shit. And my simple answer is like, I already decided that a while ago because I've processed the most riskiest things in my life. Um, So coming out and being me is nothing, you know, because I'm not trying to say it's nothing, but it's actually, it's merely just um, the bottom of the barrel, you know, because I've already put the lid on. I've created the barrel already. Amazing. Um, I want to talk about some times where, you know, I mean, for you, Jamaica, this is so embodied in what you do, the creative decisions and the risks that come with it you know, as a rapper, um, as a ballroom leader, but also simply as, um, you know, walking out the door and being, um, when did they become viable ways to forge solidarities across differences in our communities? And, you know, Nicole, I'll touch on what you were saying before, that sometimes the uh, pushes forward for change have to come from within um, the communities that are closest to us. So maybe we'll start with you, uh, Nicole, on this one. What have been some, some examples or moments where it's worked? I wish I had more, but I would say on a very small scale, I would say in education, with young people and with adults, where you actually create a space for people to hear each other and a space for people to be uncomfortable. And I have to give credit to the amazing First Nations educators that I've worked with at a museum that I work with in Sydney, and especially Emily McDaniel and Emma Hicks, and creating spaces and opportunities for people to feel uncomfortable when talking about race and particularly around colonisation and um, invasion, but opening that space for people to then make change and be change makers. So I feel like, especially with educators, we work a lot with um, school, high school, primary, early learning educators to actually teach um, around First Nations content and centre First Nations perspective in perspectives in visual art. And those spaces for me have been really amazing spaces of change where you see people walk in, they're there, so they're willing to, to start to think differently, but by the end of it, their whole world has opened up and this confidence has come because... They need to also be change makers. They need to be the ones that are also centering First Nations voices and perspectives and cultures. And so they leave and then they take this back to their school where they're gonna hopefully, you know, take this to 300 children and actually make that change. So I feel like 
this thing of supporting people to be change makers in their communities is a really important thing to do. Um, and I'm really excited. I feel like that for me is a really exciting space to be in, um, in terms of inviting people in, saying it's okay to be uncomfortable, giving them an opportunity to learn. Yes, there are going to be stupid questions and yes, we deal with them and sometimes, you know, my colleagues and we, we get hurt with those questions but it's also like that person is leaving with a new way of seeing the world and a new perspective and empathy and they're leaving and they're taking that to their community and I do really believe in that you can't have a small group of people do all the work. You have to have allies and you have to have solidarity and so it is about actually giving people opportunities to learn and take that back to where they are. Jamaica, Darren. <laughs> um, I'm thinking of when it worked. Specifically, I'm just thinking of like the next generation in ballroom. I, I know that I've, um, I've helped certain people figure themselves out externally. But a thing that I know I'm a point of difference in the community is that um, externally is one thing. You can, everybody is, can be that bitch. But I also like to turn them inward and just to um, start nurturing themselves internally and to be those people that um, my quote in Ballroom is, yes, you can be kind, but can you be kind? And it's like, you can be that person. We are all those people. We can all do that. But can you actually drop it and just have a connection personally? Um, I like to teach the kids that, you know, because we're not trying to raise a bunch of cunts, you know. We're trying to raise future ancestors, really. So um, that's something that I can see that has worked because there's a lot of the kids um, from all different states um, that come up to me and that they see that. You know, it's about dissolving the lines of collectives and realising that we're one um, collective. Um, just giving them clarity is something that I see that has worked in the process. I think something also to be, um, you know, conscious of, especially with community work and imagination, is that it's slow um, and it's minute. And, you know, as you said, Nicole, that you don't have many, like, tangible, uh, tangible examples or experiences to draw on. That's because, you know, by very nature of it being embodied, it's sometimes invisible... Um, imagination and the connection between imagination and action is invisible because it's every day. And I guess this is a good uh, point to now arrive at in terms of what we've been leading up to or covering for the past, you know, almost an hour with Jamaica and Nicole. And um, this is, yeah, where I think I'd like us to arrive for this conversation to carry on for further conversations. How can we understand creativity not just as expression but as tools of survival and hope. And Jamaica, um, we'll start with you. I think that um, if it's true expression, it's already going to be a tool for survival, you know, because I think true expression is not just like of yourself. It needs to be like holistic, like it needs to be beyond all of that, you know, which, for example, like me walking out today, is one form of expression. Me coming here and opening my voice is another form of expression, which actually translates into the tools of survival. Getting out of the Uber, walking through this busy space that's so 
cishet dominated is another form of expression. Coming here to open my voice, I could have actually been hurt down there, you know, but that's a tool of survival that people just misread, you know. If you're able to get out, out of your Uber and to not worry and to be fine, that's a privilege you need to acknowledge, you know, and that's actually a tool of survival that you can teach somebody else, you know. I'm fine, like, I'll pop a bitch if she tries me, but if somebody else that can't, doesn't have that um, strength, yeah, that's something else. I think just naturally, like, Creative expression will be so boring if it didn't have some form of value within it. Um, and yeah, I think like tools of survival and hope should be amongst that. I'm sorry, like if your creative expression doesn't have that, it's a waste. You know, I'm not trying to be offensive, but it's like there's such a broad perspective in this world. Don't cut those points off in that process. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I just think creativity is part of living. and. Yes, it's a tool of survival, but it's also a tool of life. It's it, and as an artist, as and someone who actually makes with materials as well, I do work a lot with textiles. I physically need to do those things in the same way that I need to sleep, and the same way I need to eat, and everything else I need to do to to live. So I feel like it is part of our being, and I feel like it always has been part of our beings, and we've been um, taught a lot of the time to not include that as part as as part of our everyday but all of us come from traditional cultures and from cultures where our practices are creative it's it is about expression and it is about having a voice and it's about having a language because for me art and and creativity is about another way of speaking and not using words but using things that actually speak to us in different ways and on a different level and my preference is actually a material and a visual language. And yes, I'm very lucky and I'm privileged to have this language, but if I had to sit here and speak to you in Arabic on this topic, I couldn't do it because my language is not deep enough, which saddens me. And that used to make me feel disconnected from culture. But then I realised that my culture is within me and it actually comes through my language of materials and it comes through my language of movement and of vocalizing and in other in other ways and that for me is really empowering so i think remember that you have more than one language and creativity is another language and it's another way not just of expressing ourselves but also realizing our emotions and realizing our grief and realizing our pain but also realizing our joy and our connection and our solidarity and it has so much potential that I think, you know, embracing that and embracing creativity as another form of being and another form of living is, it's really necessary and it's urgent right now. Yeah. What a beautiful place to arrive at at the close of this conversation. In, um, in our final couple of minutes, do either of you have any final remarks or thoughts or takeaways or giveaways for us here in this space um, to take with us forward after this conversation? Oh, I just think make time for it. Make time for listening. Make time for creating. Make time for imagining. Could you, you know, could you imagine if we all collectively imagined a new world into being and imagine a new way of being and imagined this oppressive society that is destroying itself actually changing 
And we are already doing that because we are changing and we are operating in different ways. But let's ramp it up. I'm just always lead with love. That's my biggest inspiration. My mum's like life lesson for me. Um, and then also realize that when it comes to change, if you can't see change around you or if inspiration's not an arm reach away, then you must be the change. You know, so just be prepared for that, that if you can't see it, you are it. So that you have to just be prepared, be prepared for that. Um, and yeah, life's just so much better when you have people that look up to you when you're doing an amazing job. Can we please thank uh, Nicole and Jamaica for sharing their time and love and care with us. Thank you so much, Jamaica Moana, Nicole Barakat. Also, thank you so much to Latoya Rule for sharing their words with us. That is all for Race Matters this week. I'm Sharika Halaludin. You've been listening to a live conversation we held thanks to City of Sydney exploring imagination as practice, how creativity can shape social change. Thank you so much to the inimitable Darren Lasagas for holding that conversation and to our generous guests Jamaica Moana, Nicole Barakat and of course Latoya Rule who couldn't be present but for allowing us to share their words. Some shout-outs to those who helped this event come together. TK Park, Tiana Severino-Fido, Jenna Parker, Harvey O'Sullivan, and to Text a Queen for donating some beautiful artwork you'll see online for this event. You can listen back to this and all episodes of Race Matters at fbiradio.com slash racematters, where you can also learn more about all of the guests today. Mm, yeah, big art collector, silent investor, film director... Beating on my chest, going ape shit, putting in a grave shit. Ain't life what you make it, yeah, it is. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters.